Welcome to Consume This with me, John Duffy. This week, I'm also joined by special guest Bernard Hickey. I'm really excited to have him back on Consume This for the second time. Bernard is a fantastic journalist and a brilliant podcaster and just a really interesting dude to talk to. As well as finding the time to talk with us, he also runs his own independent media platform called The Kaka. It's home to all his independent journalism, economic analysis, and of course his podcasts. There's tons there, and you can access lots of it for free. But if you want to dive deeper and support important independent journalism, well, I'm delighted to say that for a limited time, he's offering 50% off full Kaka memberships to all Consumer NZ members. To take up the offer, all you need to do is follow the special promo link in the show notes. So, Bernard, welcome to the show and, and thanks heaps for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, John. I, my first episode on the podcast was a cracking lap around the housing disaster zone, so I'm really pleased to go off the beaten track a bit and talk about something else. Yeah. So today we're talking about an issue that affects thousands and maybe tens of thousands of us every year. Our most recent nationally representative consumer sentiment tracking tells us that 1 in 10 people say that they or someone in their household has fallen financially victim to a scam in the last 12 months. Just let that sink in. 10% of households have themselves been affected financially by a scam in the last 12 months. According to the banking ombudsman, Scams are costing us more than $200 million a year. Complaints to the ombudsman are up 63% year on year, but as many of us who are in the know strongly suspect, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg, because the truth is, lots of these crimes go unreported. This means no one really knows the true extent of the problem. Yep, we're talking about scams. So, before we get into our discussion, I want to play you a clip that we recorded with News Hub journalist Perry Wilton. And one of the striking things about uh, our conversation with Perry was how frustrated and affected he was by his dealing with the victim in this instance. It's just one of many examples of what's happening, but I think it really uh, sets the tone for what we're going to have a talk about today. News Hub was approached by an 80-year-old scam victim who had been through a terrible ordeal, lost $40,000, all of it was savings for the grandkids. If we look at what actually happened with the scam, we have an 80-year-old who is an Auckland resident who was on their computer playing online poker, an error message comes up, kind of blocked his computer, and there was a phone number attached to the error message. He called the number and at the other end of the phone call was a police officer who said, look, you are being scammed um, and you can actually help us catch the scammer. Apparently the scammer then provided them with some ID online that showed that they were a police officer so everything seemed above board the scammer posing as a police officer said we're gonna transfer forty thousand dollars to you you're then going to transfer that forty thousand dollars to an offshore account once that money lands in that account we'll have an idea of 
who this person is who's scamming. He looked in his account, there was $40,000 there that wasn't uh, previously there. He said, great, that's not even my money. Unbeknownst to him, the scammers had already taken this money from the victim's credit card and put it into their spending account. So he looked at this money, to him it was new money, but actually it was his own money that was now in his account. He then made his way to a bank the bank teller asked them a number of questions. Are they sure that they want to be sending this off? And the victim at this point thinks that they're helping catch a scammer. And this fake police officer on the phone has said, look, if they ask who you're sending it to, say you're sending it to your brother's sister or someone to this effect. So you have a, a case here where the victim is, is kind of pushing back against the bank teller and saying, no, this is all above board. And the bank teller, despite the fact that this is the first time that he's ever sent money to this account that has ever sent anything to Hong Kong in this way and it's a big sum of money the money gets processed we started doing some investigating just trying to work out exactly what had happened and it got to the point where we felt personally and obviously the bank would refute this but we felt that there might have been some steps that could have taken place that might have protected this person from themselves uh, at the point where they physically went into the bank it's our understanding that the scammer was on the phone with them at the time. The, the bank teller might not have known that, but we then wanted to kind of raise questions with the bank. The bank said, look, we need permission to talk about these details. And at this point, this family, they're so traumatized by what they've been through. They think that basically every single interaction now that they're having is with a scam. We spoke to the police, they're saying hundreds of calls a day nationally involving scams. Millions of dollars are being sifted from Kiwis. Victim advocates, uh, age concern, they're all saying that New Zealand banks need to be doing more to protect these customers. And even if you've got a queue of people in the bank out the door, these extra minutes could save customers thousands of dollars. So, Bernard, what are your what are your first impressions of, of Perry's interaction with this victim and the, and the facts of this case? Well, this is alarming. It's like some sort of Kafkaesque nightmare where, effectively, you're gaslighted into uh, believing your scammer over and above everyone else to the point where, eventually, you stop believing in everything. <laughs> it's the worst possible thing. And, of course, for a lot of people, they feel vulnerable. They've just been stolen from and uh, they're reluctant to um, expose their situation to someone in authority or certainly to um, a bank maybe they're looking to you know win the trust of a bank to get a loan or you know maybe they're in a relationship with someone and it's incredibly embarrassing to expose yourself like this and particularly when you really need to be quite assertive and detailed and persistent to get through some of the customer service systems that the banks have and the complications of of proving who you are and where you are and what actually happened it is literally your worst nightmare oh look i agree and i you know you've touched on it there i can understand why people feel reluctant to report this some of the sums we're talking about are, are eye-watering they're you know people's life savings are being are being cleaned out. It's certainly not necessarily just um, elderly New Zealanders who are falling victim here, but you know the impact on someone who's at the end of their uh, earning time, having their life savings wiped out by the activities of a scammer is, is just horrific to think about. 
so so that kind of illustrates i think the human toll of this this is this is real and it's affecting thousands of new zealanders as we speak like in real time new zealanders new zealand seems to be well it feels like it at least under attack by scammers like i i can't recall in a 20-year career in consumer protection hearing as many stories and seeing the stats that show the sheer volume of attempts to scam people at the moment so people really really need to be on their guard but what is it do you think that is making us so susceptible to scamming and where do you think intervention needs to occur well, there needs to be a lot more urgency, um, not just from the banking industry, but for the, from the various arms of government. It's all very um, frustrating that the rise of scamming has happened in tandem with the, um, the emergencies around COVID. And ironically, over the COVID period, we all became a lot more online in the way that we did things. We became a lot more reliant on these platforms. And unfortunately, because we were fighting a, a biological threat, this virtual threat has not been perhaps given the attention that is required. And because, you know, the various players involved, be it the banks or the telcos or NZTA, uh, realise that by investigating and exposing and protecting their customers, they really are playing Russian roulette in a way with their own reputations. And so they have to be, well, they feel they have to be very cautious about how they deal with it. And I think the the massive distractions around for the last couple of years, plus a fundamental issue in the banking sector, which I think is underestimated, and that is the multiple decades of technology change that banks have undergone, often after multiple uh, mergers and acquisitions, mean that they are quite reluctant and find it very difficult to do massive tech change in a way that would go straight to the, the industry standard for protections. And the banks too have been quite careful about their spending in the last five to ten years. There have been criticisms from the Reserve Bank and others that they have not invested enough in their technology, not only just to improve it from a customer point of view, but to to ensure that there is a stable financial system and a stable system for making transactions. Particularly now we are incredibly reliant on these networks for payments. We're not using cash so much. So I, I think the banks are unfortunately going to have to step up and use their balance sheets and their cash flows to make sure that they provide the technology protections and the customer service to try to reduce the impact of this. I mean, it seems to me, I agree with what you're saying, it seems to me there's a fairness issue here in that banks have really benefited from technological advancements. You can't pay by cheque anymore. It's hard to find a bank branch these days. We, we're doing everything through our banking apps, which means you probably need less people in your call centre, which why, is why you have to wait on the phone for so long when you want to, when you are caught in the middle of a scam and you need to call, talk to the bank quickly. It's a, it, there can be significant delays. So banks are reducing their expenses and, and introducing efficiencies by taking advantage of all of this massive technological leap forward. But what for, I take from what you're saying there and, and from what the, the 
concerns the Reserve Bank has, has raised, there hasn't been a corresponding investment in the underlying technology and the payment system itself to actually protect customers or, or to, to at least lift the security posture of the banks um, that would have a corresponding protection um, to it's, bank customers. That's right. I mean, the banks are making um, upwards of $6 billion a year in profits. Now, a big chunk of that profits comes from the, the business of banking, of um, holding money on deposit and lending it out and then claiming a margin on the way through. But the other reason that their profits have increased so dramatically in the last decade is that their uh, cost of doing business per transaction, per billion dollars of lending has dropped sharply. They've reduced the number of branches. As you say, they've reduced the size of their help centres and they've effectively used the benefits of technology to bank the profits. Now, that's all fine. We all like a more efficient business. But um, when it's starting to cost your customers and potentially erode the um, trust in uh the banking system and the transaction system, that is dangerous, not just a, an individual brand point of view, but from a macroeconomic point of view and from a system trust point of view. And I think the Reserve Bank needs to play a role here in inserting itself in the process to ramp up the level of urgency. The calls, for example, for a confirmation of a payee system, as we've seen in other countries, seems to have been quite slow here. I know that as recently as last month, the New Zealand Bankers Association have said that they're looking to instigate an industry-wide confirmation of payee account name checking service. But this is taking a long time, and certainly you'd, you'd really want to see a level of commitment from the banks to drop everything and deal with this. And also some support and encouragement from the powers that uh, be, like the Reserve Bank and the industry. This is a full-scale emergency in terms of how our banking system operates, trust in our payment systems. It's not a small issue. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, thousands of customers, and one of the core pieces of software of our economy. If you think about an economy as a collection of trust relationships, right at the heart of that is our payment system and our banking system. And for a long time, we've, we've had, a, had a system which was quite efficient, relatively small, controllable. I remember as a bank customer in the UK and in Australia, being surprised at how hard it was to do things and how mm. poor the service was and thinking, wow, New Zealand's got, we, we've, we've, we've got a march on everyone else here. We were one of the first to have the FPOS system, which was a very mm. cheap and efficient way to run things. But in the last decade, we have fallen behind in part because we've, the concentration of the banking system in the last decade has very much been on mergers and acquisitions. We've had this massive deal which put together National and ANZ, which saw the combination of two banking systems, two customer groups. You've also seen consolidation amongst some of the smaller, smaller players. And then, of course, the last two or three years with COVID, the banks themselves, too, have, you know, had, had their minds and activities elsewhere. It is hard to completely transform the system when there's no, no one in the office or, you know, you're just doing your best to keep things up and running. But now that the COVID emergency is passed, the banks have the resources 
they should be focusing their attention and their activities on urgently dealing with these problems with the the systems that have been nailed down overseas, the confirmation of pay, removing web links from texts, and really nailing down the problems we've seen with, for example, some of the scammers having actual bank accounts with the New Zealand banks. I mean, that's that's pretty scary when you think that the banks should be seeing and analysing the flows of money through their own accounts. And if they can't see that the scammers are using them to commit crimes, then that's a particular problem too. There's heaps in that. And I, I guess one of the things that drops out of that for me is incentives. So actually what's incentivising the banks to do better here? And we know we've got a Commerce Commission market study looking at competition issues in the in the banking sector. And, you know, the big four, they have 85% of the market. They are making record profits year on year. It's a pretty good gig to be in banking. Do you feel that there's enough competitive tension in this market to incentivise the banks to be competing, to offer the best security? And, subsidiary question, should banks be competing on security? Because is security actually one of those fundamentals, like privacy, for example, where you sh- everyone should just be best in class? It should, it should be a no-brainer. Um, you shouldn't be going out and, and promoting your security as being better than, than the next person. That's, there's a lot in that question. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, certainly our banks are not competing as aggressively as in other sectors. And we know that because we can see the scale of the profitability of the banking sector and how fast it's grown. And it's not just because interest rates are rising and because they're particularly well managed. If you look at the Reserve Bank's analysis of our banking sector, we have the most profitable banks in the world, and a large reason for that is that they have re- improved their efficiency, their cost-to-income ratio, faster than uh, other banks. We also can see it in the in the sheer level of competition for bank accounts in terms of people's core bank accounts, the actual transaction accounts. Yes, there is competition for term deposits and for mortgages, but not for that core accounts issue. It's quite difficult to move accounts. And what we haven't seen in banking is the sort of forced reforms of the systems, the incentives that we saw in telecommunications. So the best example of this is through the 2000s and early 2010s when the intervention of the government to allow number portability and the regulation of these mobile termination rate fees, which effectively had cordoned people off into different mobile networks. We have not seen that intervention in the banking system here to make it much easier to shift accounts and also to understand some of the fees involved in shifting money about. At the same time, the banks have been organising a pretty sweet deal with the credit card companies by which they have added a new layer of fees in and have, in the process, shifted people from what was an efficient, not very sexy, but very good system, FPOS, to the tap-and-go systems we have, which have added in a new layer of costs, which seem convenient, but which have meant that some of the benefits of FPOS have not been 
worked on or translated into security mm-hmm. benefits. For example, you know, one of the reasons FPOS was so successful is that it was seen as a solution to a security problem. It wasn't a solution to a profit problem. And it would have been great to have seen some of that innovation put into security over the last few years. So I think, A, the banks should be investing more in security. They should be encouraged by this market study into competing with each other more. You know, the, the government and the Commerce Commission should be looking at nudges and measures and targeted interventions to encourage that sort of competition. Because as you say, wouldn't it be great to see one of the banks uh, come out with um, a product innovation or a system change which says we are the safest bank on the, mm. uh, in the motu and you can come to us knowing that our fraud rate is much lower. Uh, whereas at the moment, it's very much a case of Hogan's heroes. I see nothing, I know nothing. Let's not call bullshit on each other because we've all got a problem and it's best if we don't make too much noise about it. It would be great if someone actually solved the problem and could make noise. Well, that's right. And, and I wonder, thinking about incentives, so we're currently under the banking code of practice if there's a, there's a distinction drawn between authorised fraud and unauthorised fraud. And unfortunately, the scams are the, are the ones that we're most concerned about in this discussion are authorised frauds. So you're scammed, therefore you make a willing payment. And that means the bank doesn't incur any liability there. However, the flip side works when it's unauthorised, where someone nicks your wallet and goes to town on your credit card or um, transfers some money out of your bank account and you haven't authorised that, generally speaking, you will be covered by the banks. And actually the banks are really good at stopping running interference on those types of frauds. And in the example that Perry described at the top of the show, you've got a person who's never made a transaction to Hong Kong before, Mm. probably a person who's never transferred $40,000 off their own credit card into their bank account before as well. You know, to me, those both seem like really, really red flags and things that if the banks knew that they would be on the line for refunding that customer, they'd probably get some alerting in place pretty quickly to make sure that that teller who's talking to the person in the bank is advised that, hey, this could be, these are red flags and this could be a scam. Yeah, no, it would be good to take a belt and braces approach to this and to prioritise customer safety and brand protection above efficiency in this case. Sometimes friction is a good thing. (laughs) And although Mm. none of us love standing in a queue for a while, if it means that our neighbour or our friend doesn't get scammed to the tune of 40 or 50k, then we should accept that. And also the banks should be encouraged and rewarded, I suppose, for essentially taking a much more careful approach. This is not rocket science, as they say. These issues have been dealt with overseas. If you think it's bad here, we're, we're at the end of the planet and all of these scans have been tried out at much, much larger scale mm. and earlier everywhere else. And we should be picking up the best practice from everywhere else in the world and applying in, in an urgent way and and treating it like an emergency. It It is an emergency and it is endangering trust in a core piece of software in our economy and in our financial system. And the safeguards to that system, the regulators 
as well as the banks themselves, should know that this is a, a clear and present danger to trust in the system. Do you think the banks are too worried about that? I mean, you as a consumer might lose trust in the system, but what are your alternatives? What are you going to do? You know, you, you probably are banking with one of the big four slash five, if you include little Kiwi Bank in there as well. What are your other options realistically? Go off grid? Cash only? Yeah. Well, a cash is something uh, it's good to see that the Reserve Bank want to keep, if only for the 10% of people who do not have smartphones and mm. do not have access to Wi-Fi networks and, and all of that. As we discovered during the Cyclone Gabrielle disaster, when the power and tel- telecommunications lines went out to the East Coast, the first thing that stopped was payments. And the Reserve Bank, I think, was quite shocked at how reliant our economies Mm. are on those, not just the FPOS, but the other networks that go with it. And that's something we should be thinking about. But I also think from an industry point of view, from a, a a purely business point of view, these big banks, yes, they are big and they are very profitable, but at their heart, they are simply a trust relationship and a collection of data. And... Do you know, there are a bunch of other businesses in the world that are bigger than our big four banks who've been dealing with these sorts of security, digital identification issues for a long time. You know, we're talking about Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and uh, Google, and they've been doing this for a long time. And a lot of New Zealanders have trusted relationships with those organisations, Apple in particular. And that's an example of a... So I was going to say, that's an example of a company that is competing on security, right? Apple are, exactly. are out there and loud and proud about the fact that they back themselves to have the best security and whether that makes them more of a target for scammers or, or less. And, and water takes the path of least resistance, so scammers will find the weakest link and target that mm. um, rather than going to a higher degree of effort to try and target someone that might have better security. So maybe there's something in the in the banks to take from, from how Apple approaches things. Yeah, and... I certainly appreciate some of the multiple ways that I'm being identified now with particular services. Zero, for example, a lot of other mission-critical type online services are using multi-factor authentication mm. uh, now. That's not the case with some of the banks that I've seen and use, and I can see why they're reluctant to do it. It's a bit of kit that they have to buy and send out to everyone and train and support. But it's actually just recently, without naming any particular brands, you know, one of the reasons I'm shifting some of my accounts to another bank is because they made the multi-factor authentication free and Mm. made it easy. So, you know, maybe we're starting to see a, a, a market response here. But as you say, with 85, 90% of the market locked down in those big four, and with those companies quite reluctant to take tech risk they've got an awful lot of tech Mm. debt which they don't want to challenge and the problem too is that in many ways they're too big to fail from a reserve bank industry point of view one of them the very largest is you know it's got 30 40 percent of the market and understandably they worry that if they completely change their systems that creates some 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 risk in itself but we can't Mm. keep going with the sorts of scales of scams and the breadth of them that we have at the moment. 
It's really interesting you mentioned your experience there. So we, we do an annual survey of banking customers and every year the switching rate, we ask people, have you switched in the last year and what are your perceptions of switching? And the perception of that switching is difficult is persistently high, but for people who have switched, they report back, actually it was much easier than I thought it was. The barriers to switching may not be as high as what's perceived, but we typically only see 4 to 5% of people switching in a year. But for those people who have switched, when we ask them why or what would, what would really motivate them to switch, security concerns such as you know what you've just described are right up there. In a truly competitive market, you would think that the banks would be really incentivized to not only implement good security, uh, but to be telling people uh, as a retention um, measure that their, that their security is best in class. And you'd have to hope that uh, some of the banks are doing that. But New Zealanders are, are quite careful about criticising other people in their industry. Often it's quite mm. a tight-knit industry. And criticising someone else is something we do rarely. I call it the Quarry Lounge Society economy where where people everyone knows everyone and that's um, why no one talks about the correlate <laughs> and and that is you know something we need to be a bit more aware of and the perfect exa- example of this is telecommunications you had an industry that was quite cozy then there was an intervention mm-hmm. then there was a very aggressive competition People were calling bullshit on each other all over the place. And lo and behold, we have better service and lower costs. And it would be mm. great to see a bit more of that in banking. I'll know it's there when I see a plane flying overhead with a big flag that looks like a one of those multi-factor authentication fobs. And it's a bank saying, hey, we've got the best fobs on the market or whatever it is. Yeah, because that will matter. Yeah. It's interesting, I do agree with you, the general point is we are pretty, we're not great. It's left to kind of people like you and me to call out what we <laughs> see as, as slightly dodgy behaviour in industries. But there are some industries where, yeah, you do have some, some, some upstarts who are willing to do that. Yeah, ultimately, though, this is a, a government issue, you know, consumer mm-hmm. protection. This is the whole point of, of laws and, and government and regulation is to protect the weak, to avoid corrosion of trust in your society and and to ensure that the powerful don't get away with things and one of the interesting things we'll have to be wary about in the coming months and years is we've got this change of government coming which has talked a lot about getting rid of red tape as it's called and actually New Zealand is regularly rated as one of the easiest places in the world to start a business and I do worry sometimes that our high trust society our low corruption society has left it vulnerable to mm-hmm. to being scammed and sometimes you you do need a bit of friction in there to ensure that uh, it's not too easy to take advantage of the scale and relative frictionless of doing things online to take advantage of people and if your if your default position is trust as opposed to skepticism that's dangerous, and unfortunately, um, it's been used for good and for evil. And it would be great for a, a government to perhaps be a little cautious before they remove regulation, or more importantly, decide not to put regulation in where it's necessary, particularly for organisations mm-hmm. like banks, which 
actually, in effect, have a government guarantee, a, a type of license, I mean, to be rude, a license to print money. And mm. that's something that, you know, that, that should come with a cost. I mean, the cost is to invest some extra money in making sure that your systems are safer and that you, you, the software that you've become for the economy r- remains as bug-free as possible. Yeah. I think just before we wrap up, I think one of those solutions that the, the, the banking industry is actually getting in behind is this idea of an anti-scam centre, but it needs coordination and I think it would be a mistake to leave it to industry to coordinate that. So I see that there is, there's definitely a role for government in pulling those organisations together, some of which are actually government organisations. You know, you need potentially need the security services there, you need the police there, potentially need DIA there, sharing intelligence so that the banks have real-time information that they can feed into their systems, however antiquated they currently are, to protect people in real time. Because these things move and evolve so quickly that by the time you've, you've built something like confirmation of payee, and it might take years based on the... the the state we find our payment system in, you know, scamming will have moved on and banks may be able to make the argument, well, sure, we can build this thing at the cost of millions of dollars and three years' worth of work, but will it actually solve the problem you're trying to address? I personally think it will, but building it needed to start years ago, mm-hmm. you know, when, yeah. when other countries were already able to show that it was having a meaningful impact. Yeah, and uh, those banks are not short of cash. And the one thing that is incredibly valuable to them is a brand and trust. And uh, surveys that I understand yourselves have done, but also others, have shown an erosion of trust in Mm, uh, our financial services companies, both in insurance and banking, but also in some of our network companies over the years. And that's about effectively banking profits by allowing your brand to be diluted somewhat. You can do that for a bit, but at some point hmm. that's potentially risky. You, you reach a tipping point, and I think the banks should realise that they're closer to that tipping point than, than maybe their shareholders are telling them, and that um, pulling together in an emergency in the way that they did during COVID would mm. be a good idea, particularly in approaching it as a, a national security threat. It's a system that is the nervous system, the respiratory system, and the blood circulatory system for the economy. And if if we don't ensure the system stays healthy, things can fall over pretty quickly. People should get together, maybe in the Cora Lounge, <laughs> and work out a solution. Maybe, maybe that's... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> All right, Bernard. Hey, look, thanks for uh, joining us on Consume This. We, we always love having you on. I guess we issue a challenge to the banking sector, you know. Come on, guys. It's time to, to get your act together and do more to um, to protect consumers. I'll just uh, repeat what I said at the start of the episode, that, that Consumer NZ members can get a 50% off full membership to your independent media platform, the Kaka, by following the link in the show notes. And I'd I'd really support consumer members taking that offer up because you you do great work. So keep it up and thanks a lot for joining us. Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. 
Right now, literally, as we speak, we are working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.